Alright, so here we are, uh, sponsored by Nobody, and today we are talking um, about an ongoing RPG project. Right now I have Liam uh, from Sandy Pug Games on the line, and we also have Peter here as well, you know, from sponsored by Nobody, you know who Peter is. And uh, today Liam is here to talk to us about their newly kickstarted game, uh, Disposable Heroes. Hello! So Liam, uh, yeah, just... Generally, you know, this part, just introduce yourself. Tell us kind of about yourself and Sandy Pug Games, and uh, let's dive in on uh, Disposable Heroes. Sure. Uh, well, uh, I'm Liam. Uh, I am the, I guess you could say, lead designer at Sandy Pug Games. Although um, Disposable Heroes is not, I, I am technically not the lead designer on that. That's our other designer, Ren, who's um, leading that. I am an avid role-playing game fan, like basically everybody that you will have on the show, I'm sure. Um, I've been playing games for a very long time and designing them for slightly less, but still, I think, fairly long time these days. Um, Sandy Pug Games for a very long time was just kind of me. Uh, I'm sure a lot of folks listening probably have their own, you know, adjective animal uh, games group that they, they work under. That was just me for a while. And then we had some success with a game that some people may know called Orc Stabber, which led to slightly more success with a game that some people may know called Americana. And oh, yeah, those Americana. two factors. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've actually but, uh, I've heard of that. I've tried to uh, make some time to go through it. It looks really fun. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. It's, it, was the, it was the biggest project that we'd undertaken, and it's a really beautiful book. We have... Um, that's really when we sort of flexed a little bit and, and grew very quickly to be more than just myself. Yeah, that was last uh, October, right? Americana uh, kickstarted. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, it was a. Uh, I believe the Kickstarter wrapped a little bit before October or a little after October. I can't remember. Yeah. All but right. yeah, it, it, it was very cool. Um, that was when we we really grew up a little bit um, producing that, and we just delivered the pdf of that last month and the print books are sort of at a point where i don't touch anything anymore it's all in the layout people's hands um so it seemed like a good time to launch a crowdfunder for the next big project which is uh disposable heroes all right so for the uninitiated could you let us uh kind of tell us a bit more about disposable heroes and what the game's kind of about i know the kickstarter as of right now is live so Let's uh, let's point people towards that. Yeah, go and check it out. Uh, Disposable Heroes is, at its heart, a, a powered by the apocalypse game. You know, you're rolling two d six, you're adding a stat, and there's several degrees of success. But the exciting part, the fun part about the game, is that you are playing with. Uh, we we got rid of we got rid of playbooks. We got rid of character sheets all altogether. In their place, you've got this deck of cards. Um, and they're beautiful cards. They're tarot sized. They've got these. They've got fantastic illustrations on them. They've got some fantastic layout. Um, really, really cool sort of vibrant graffiti style. But on the cards, you have a character that has a weapon, a single class move, and uh, their stats and so on. And this character, you draw it at the beginning of the game. You know, every character, every every player, sorry, draws one. And when they take damage, they immediately are discarded, and a new character is drawn. And so you have this really cool sort of roguelike experience going on where you're constantly psyching through all of these uh, characters with these 
weird skills and abilities and so on. Overall, oh, could, sorry, that's okay. Well, it's the setting which pairs really well with the sort of idea is that this this is this uh, future fantasy world where you're um, really inspired by the same thing that inspired the artwork, which is Jet Set Radio, um, the video game that was on the Dreamcast and the Xbox, um, which is really close to mine and Rent's heart. Uh, you so you've got this like vibrant future world, and you're all playing as gig economy package delivery people. Ah, uh, very uh, trying to, It's it's we we think we've nailed like a sort of black comedy vibe in it really well, where like there's the reality that you're sort of going through this meat grinder, and your characters are getting you know churned up and spit out and 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 murdered, and then immediately replaced because the the app that you're working for has so many people just trying to make ends meet. You're trying to get five stars at the end. There's some moves for handling how well you do the delivery, and if you mess up too badly, you get fired. That sort of thing. Yeah. So for reference, for people who might not be aware of the roguelike genre, um, games that immediately come to mind are like The Binding of Isaac, uh, FTL, uh, Risk of Rain. Uh, I actually really like Rogue Legacy for that because it has a whole family tree thing going on. But they're basically games where you will lose your character permanently pretty quickly, but the further you progress through them, and usually the dungeons are fairly randomized or the encounters are fairly abstract and randomized, but as you progress, you unlock things that make it easier on the next run to go on through them. So there's a sort of meta uh, uh, competency that builds up as you get better at playing the game, even if the character is reset to zero every single time. Right. So, would that be a fair description of uh, kind of the, the, the kind of genre we're looking to capture here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, my, my touchstone is actually pretty, um, even a little more esoteric than the things that you named. Um, I, I'm looking at things like NetHack. Oh yeah, and uh, Brogue and uh, the Doom RL, which isn't called that anymore for legal reasons. <laughs> um, which is to say that, like, the draw for a lot of those games, um, and it, it carries on to this day. Dead Cells does this too. The draw is less in the meta progression and more in the um, what the randomized dungeon spits out at you and what you can build around as you go. You know, even if you play as the same class in something like NetHack, no two games are going to be the same because you're going to pick up different weapons as you go and you're going to build your character around the equipment that you find. Right. In this, we tried to streamline that by just giving you a different special power as soon as you get kicked out of the game. You get brought back in with this new character that you're going to try to play as, this new play style you're going to have to adapt to. Right. So, um, one thing you did mention is that you've done away with playbooks in the character sheet, and uh, as far as I can tell, um, Disposal Heroes is running off of its own sort of custom tarot deck, right? Yeah, uh, it, the, the cards are tarot-sized, it's not a tarot deck. Right. But, like, it's nice, big, artsy, like, you know, art-packed, glossy cards that are that kind yeah. of, you know, layout. Form factor, I guess would be the word. Yeah, exactly. We, it was important for us to make sure that the, the cards were like this really fun, tactile part of the game because mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's important. The, the smaller, normal playing size cards are fine, but there's something about that like extra size card that just really feels good in your hand and feels good to sort of play around with. Yeah, I definitely agree. It, it just feels better to play around with them. Even um, like we have a few tarot decks that we've gotten here just from friends and uh, gifts and just playing around with them as like a mechanic resolution tool 
there, there's it's weird. It's how how the the sort of human animal brain works. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so eliminating the character sheet and connecting down to a randomized deck of cards, is there any way to add sort of customization to it as you go along? Not, not so much. Um, you know, without there's not like a leveling mechanic or anything anymore. Um, the game is definitely more focused toward one shots and sh- very short campaigns. We actually just had a, a conversation with someone on Twitter about like how Power by the Apocalypse off spin-off games often sort of struggle with doing progression really well mm. um and uh, definitely how yeah like like leveling up and adding more power to a character often dilutes them um and and sometimes that's fine like sometimes it's okay to sort of like expand the character i think there are lots of games that do it well but what we're trying to do is deliver a uh what I what I've sometimes said when I've talked about this game is that whenever I look at a playbook for any Powered by the Apocalypse game, there's almost always one move on the character sheet that makes me think, oh, that's the best move, clearly. Like that's the best thing about this character. Yeah. What I want what we want for disposable heroes is that every single card has that one move that just makes this like definitive character and then they're gone and you get another one. So customization, not quite. Um, I, I have played around with making like a focus deck, as in like you take the 60 or so, 65 or so character cards and sort of build a specific like party almost out of them that you know are going to come up as you draw. Um, and I think there's something to be played with there, but that's not really in the call game. That might be, you know, maybe an expansion, maybe a spinoff, maybe a hack. Yeah, it sounds like it'd be really good for just sitting people down at a convention or just as like a, an overnight thing and introducing people as a crash course into a game. You know, the deck is always ready to go pretty much, right? Yeah, exactly. All all you really need to play is the deck and 2d6 and, uh, you know, a couple more dice, I guess, which I know everybody who I know walks around with 24-7. Yeah. Uh, it's funny, actually, looking at Disposable Heroes. There's not a lot of games that... Um, kind of screw around with the form factor like that, like the the way that the character information is presented to the player. The only other game that I can think of that's really similar to what you're putting forward is um, Grant Howitt's Unbound, where every character deck is a 52 deck of playing cards that you scribble on as you go through the deck. And that's like the that's entire character. Weird. Yeah, it's a real weird game. We've never been able to get a session of it up and running. It just doesn't fit into our uh, what we're running. <laughs> but it's... It, it, but it's right, but- it's neat being able Sorry, to do that to, to be able to kind of change up, you know, the, the traditional ways people think of a role-playing game or how characters are presented. That's part of why this came about. Ren and I was sat talking about um, sort of the... I, I've talked about this on a couple of other podcasts, but, like, sometimes I'll see someone design something on, on Twitter or on Itch or something, and it will be something entirely unlike what I consider to be a role-playing game. And Ren, she has designed a game before um before like a uh she designed this game called wish i'll get into that in a sec um she had designed many games before and we were sort of talking about how games are usually there's a character sheet there's a book there's there's numbers there's dice the stats and like anything that breaks out of that mold just like sparks fire in my brain and ren had just finished designing this game well we just finished kicking around ideas for this game called wish delivery um, which uses wish.com, the website, as a character generator. Um, you, you order tat from it and then do a review of it, and that creates your character. It's, 
it's wild. Anyway, so so she designed that, and we were talking about games that do wild things with with your expectations. And we just sort of started talking about cards. We just recently, um, well, for Orc Stabber a, a year or so ago, um, we made these monster cards that were, again, tarot-sized cards that were little doodles, little illustrations with a description of the monster on it. Um, and we were just enamored by the cards, the size of them, the feel of them. We were talking about those. We were kicking the idea around. And we were like, "Why? you don't even really need... You don't need a rule book, really. You just need a couple of rules. And we talked about how, like, we talked about how, like, both of us have enough of Dungeon World memorized that we could run a game off the top of our heads. And we were kind of thinking about how that could work and and how much you could condense those rules down. And it just kind of came out of nowhere this this idea of a deck based party that you would cycle through, and then all the possibilities of that just started flaring up. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I I've seen a lot of um, pre D and D sort of RPGs that exist out there that also kind of do this because that was before any sort of standard uh, really hit the public consciousness as far as gaming goes. Someone showed me um, a couple months ago a book of poetry that Yoko Ono actually wrote, and in one of them is an actual role playing game based on um, like it, it's part poem, part role playing game. It's real weird. It I've looks, seen this. Oh, excellent! I'm not. I didn't make this up. I'm not crazy. <laughs> no, no, I've definitely seen this. I, I can't remember a single detail, but I absolutely remember this. Yeah, none of it's stuck in my brain, but it, it was unlike anything that people would consider like a traditional role playing game. It was great, but it had to do with like secrets and and poetry and writing down and like writing things down and abstract and stuff. It was, it was pretty neat. I, I like games like that. I think that's something that we should be exploring a lot more. Trying to, you know, break away from those conventions that we've sort of just picked up from inertia. Right, exactly. One of the things that I think that we try to do at Sandy Pug Games often is kind of like bridge a gap between the really high, like, concept experimental stuff that a lot of really cool, really talented designers are doing that often kind of gets squirreled away on like Twitter threads and yeah. itch like forums. Um, you know, like really, really amazing stuff. Like like when I read that Yoko Ono thing, the thing that I thought was like, wow, this could be on this could be a a, a $1 download on itch that nobody checks out. See, itch um, is really great for that. Now that uh, it's all those games are starting yeah. to be archived there pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's much better than being on like someone's server that you know goes inactive at some point for sure, or just gets lost on DTRPG because it's not because you know it's it's an indie game, but the most current indie games are like a fifty thousand dollar Onyx Path Kickstarter because they're very indie. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, what we try to do is sort of bridge the gap between that kind of like high concept stuff and slightly more. Um, I'm trying to think of a polite word to say kind of like more more expected, more uh, mainstream, more traditional, you know, traditional. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Design. Um, like we try to do really wild and interesting things, but then kind of like give it some kind of twist that makes it so that you're not, your, 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 your traditional audiences might be able to grip a little bit more onto it. That's something that I think we, we do pretty well. So, um, with that in mind, with, with bridging that gap, what's the expected play loop of Disposable Heroes? People going in and picking this up, what, uh, what is the evening looking like for them when they play this game? What's the draw on that? So you've got... What, what you're looking at is a really traditional sort of almost dungeon crawl setup, right? 
um, you're going to have a whatever the, the package delivery recipient's home is, which we say is, you know, I, I, I always say like a black uh, onyx um, obelisk floating high above a Jimmy John somewhere inhabited by a, a, a Demi Lich. Mm-hmm. Um, something like that. You know, like a, a, a traditional sort of Dungeons and Dragons style uh, crawl through traps and puzzles and combat encounters and so on. But the twist is, again, you've got those really sweet roguelike mechanics, but also the fact that your characters aren't there to save the day. They're not there to fight the big bad guy at the end. They're in many ways kind of employed by that big bad guy. Suddenly, like, your priorities change, and because your priorities change, your options change too. A story that I told just recently, um, for example, is that I had a group of people who were adventuring, they were doing the game, and they came up on this gang of kobolds, and the kobolds, you know, were like, oh no, we gotta fight them. And the, so the team got ready to throw down. And, it won't, and the, the one character who was playing the pacifist, uh, Pitbull, said, wait a minute, we don't have to fight these guys. We have, we have no beef with them. And they rolled their move, which allows them to make peace for a brief moment. Um, and it turns out that the kobolds were working for a rival app um, for hiring mooks, basically, for hiring henchmen. Um, and so what happened was these two groups of people who are like both working class, both just trying to make it men's meet, just sort of decided to meet the letter of each other's contracts. So they had a quote unquote fight and then they went on their merry way because, you know, it's, the conflict isn't the important thing anymore. Mm-hmm. Throw into that as well. Um, the fact that you've got this package you've got to take care of and suddenly like the risk of dying really doesn't matter all that much anyway. What you're trying to do is protect this package as you go. And the package becomes this like central pillar that connects all of the other characters coming in. So what ends up happening is you've got this very traditional dungeon crawl with puzzles and encounters and so on, mixed with like oddball from Halo. If, if anyone's played that, where you have like a, a you, you're protecting the package, you're keeping it safe, you're making sure it doesn't get damaged. And you're also kind of trying to speed run the dungeon because the amount of time you take is kind of a, a big deal. Like if you waste a lot of time, you're going to get a worse rating at the end because they're trying to get that package on time. That actually sounds kind of amazing because I'm just imagining people going like, oh, this is a Demi-Lich dungeon. All we have to do is, you know, move behind the stained glass windows and there's usually an exit shunt. Yeah. Uh, or you could be like, yeah, it just it's really easy. Just jump up against this wall and you'll clip through the floor and get catapulted to the end boss. It's really good. Yeah, he used wall of force to set this up. They don't have they vibrate at a different frequency than us. Okay, just find a Skyrim door and use that. No problem. Yeah, it's a beholder, so you just have to, you know, make a lot of noise so that he'll look up and make the floor disappear under you. This <laughs> anti-magic right. guy. So, like, yeah, what, what, it turns out once you take out combat as the main, like, thing that you need to be doing, and then just dust a little bit of interesting, you know, something else to be doing, you could take this classic format and suddenly it becomes this entirely different experience. Even before you put in the rapid changing of characters uh, and so on. Hmm. All right. So that is a concern that got brought up. People like to get attached to things. The the famous snapping a pen in half and going, that pen was named Steve and people freaking out. Um, so with people rapidly cycling through in a roguelike, 
Uh, how did you tackle the idea that people are going to get attached and have to rapidly, like, sort of empathetically shift to the next character and lose uh, lose their old one? Well, to a certain extent, the answer there is just, like, this isn't going to be the same kind of thing that you're dealing with in other RPGs. You're not going to build a long-term sort of parasocial relationship with this character. Oh, you know, that's like a good that's, word. That's just not going to happen. Um, I, I may not have even used it right there. No, that's, that's perfect. Part. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Um, so you don't, you don't, you're not going to, you're not going to grow with this character, but each character has a name and a, a, a tag on their card, a graffiti tag. And like, Okay, so every single person who's played as Bruiser the Badger, the fighter, has made the exact same name, and oh, sorry, not name, the exact same voice, and the exact same like mannerisms that everyone else who's played as that Badger has have done. That's not true of every single character, but there is something there that makes people read that name, see the tag that they have, and just imagine this character and that attachment we kind of like use to amplify both the satire and the humor of the part where they die you know the 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 cute pitbull pacifist who just wants peace with everyone gets splattered by a a, a glass elemental and like the, this kind of like, oh you know like it's it's that comedic moment that, that yeah. kicks a little bit better that's actually so cool. like the the attachment is there. It's just a very different genre of attachment because it's it's again it's not really the same kind of game as the other ones that we're talking about. It kind of almost feels like um, and forgive me for referencing this game, early League of Legends, where every time you did a fight with the the, the Legends characters, it, it was actually just you partially puppeting them or partially like sinking them. So every fight they were actually fighting, and even if they died, it didn't matter because they just went back and hit the showers afterward. Or, uh, or people getting attached to fighting game characters. You know, everyone plays Scorpion or um, Sonya Blade or whatever, but they'll get attached to her, their their moveset and mannerisms through that, even if they end up, you know, dying a bunch in the fighting game. That, yeah, exactly. If that helps, you know, bridge that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One, one, of, the, one of the things that I've mentioned is, like, Overwatch, because that's a, a game oh, yeah. that I, I used to be super into. It's the same thing. It's the, that character thing. I, I've not... Obviously, the, the fact that the characters die so quickly and that the deck is so big means that you can't really man a character. There's been definitely times when we've been playing with our playtest groups where someone has been like, oh, great, such and such character has come up again. That's my favorite one. Yeah. And like they've been visibly excited that they get to play as you know, so-and-so again. Or like finding your favorite item in Biting of Isaac. Exactly, yeah. Which I've put hours into it, like 30, 40 hours, and I can't remember a single item now. They all leave me. Yeah, I, I like the one where you, where your your tears turn into a laser beam. I think that one's my favorite. Uh, you find a hundred bombs and keys at one point. That's one of the items I know for sure, and it, it changes everything about the game in a very boring, mundane way that I love. Right, exactly. Same sort of vibe. Yeah. Excellent. Well, that sounds yeah, that sounds like a great way to kind of shake that uh, that attachment up. As in multiple games and multiple cycles, people are going to be always using this kind of core set of characters as they pop up. So it's like, oh man, it's that guy. Yeah, exactly. And what I envision, or what I hope would happen, and I mean, I've play tested a bit, so I've seen like the beginnings of this maybe, but obviously, 
I can't account for anyone playing this game over like several months. Maybe they won't. Maybe that won't happen. But what what I kind of envision happening, what I hope would happen, is that like as that goes along, these characters gain their personalities that they carry on over. You know what I mean? I've seen this in in a single session where we've gone through the deck a couple of times back when the deck had like fifteen characters in it, where like the character would come up again and they would have the same personality and they would remember the things that they just had. And the character would the the sorry the player would play them as though they you know had had developed throughout the session and i've seen that happen over several sessions where a person would play again bruiser the barbarian is the one or, or bruiser the, the fighter sorry um is the character that that i come back to because it was so visually obvious and it's the the voice keeps coming up but like i've seen the same person play as that character the same way a bunch of times and sort of develop in a similar way there it's kind of like when you play Civilization or Dwarf Fortress or um, uh, oh, what's another good uh, good example? Those types of games where you kind of, oh Warhammer Warhammer miniatures where you sort of make stories for you know that one scout that keeps getting losing its armor save every single you know skirmish you start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you start exactly. to build sort of tropes and uh, and references about it. So each playgroup right. will eventually build their own sort of story behind all these characters as they cycle through games. That that would be very cool. I, I I would hope that that would happen. Um, I would like to pretend like like we did that sort of on purpose, but I, it just sort of happened as a as a weird consequence of what we had intended for. Yeah, well, people like to pack bond, so that's actually a pretty cool thing to leverage. I think so. So, how do you go about designing these characters? Like, uh, where do you get your inspirations from? Your ideas? How do you kind of go about personalizing them? You know, tell us more about the the unique moves they all get and how you sort of decide what's a good fit. I mean, both Ren and I, um, you know, we, we read a lot. We read a lot of comics. We, we watch a lot of movies and a lot of TV shows, a lot of anime. Um, we both keep, like, diaries and documents just full of, of stuff that we want to try out someday um, on, like, you know, campaign ideas and uh, neat things that we read about at some point. Um and really, that that's the genesis of basically every character that is in the deck and will be in the deck at this point. Um, actually, funny thing, we had about 40 characters at one point, um, like written down in a big document somewhere. We had like 40 different classes. And um, Ren turns to me and says, you know, we, we probably we probably wouldn't be able to get 100 characters like we. We'd already talked about getting 60 total, but she was like, you know, we probably can't get 100 characters. I think that would take a long time to come up with 100 characters. And I said, oh, yeah? And I just sat down and fired out, like, 60 new character classes. No moves, no abilities or anything, no names. But, like, I just sat down and came up with, like, 60 concepts. And she was like, okay, smart ass. Um, <laughs> but I, obviously the hard part is actually going back and making any of those ideas worth a damn. But... It's it's a lot easier than you'd think. You're you're only writing a single class character the for each each one uh, a single class move for each one rather, uh, which means you're not. You know, I used I used to write dungeon world playbooks as my main bread and butter thing in the role playing game community, and I would always write your your typical uh, dungeon world playbook has something like twenty different class moves once you factor in all the advancement moves, and I would always write eighteen and then be stuck for like the rest of the day um when you're only writing one and that that one has to be the sort of 
you know, the center thesis point. of the character. Yeah, the center point, the, what the core of that character is. Coming up with the idea isn't the really the hard part. Making that the best idea it is is the hard part. And we have to kind of like play around with it and workshop it and, and, and so on. Sometimes that comes very quickly. Sometimes that takes a long time. Um, as for moves that I'm most excited about writing, I really enjoy... And maybe this is just because I really like the, the breaking of the mold stuff, but I really like how a bunch of the characters in the game have abilities that explicitly mess around with the deck and card relationship going on. Yeah. Um, like, the one that's in the playtest deck that you can play around with right now is the chef, uh, who's a raccoon. Um, and their ability is that if they have a cooking fire, they can cook two characters and basically allow extra draws on the deck and allow people to... Oh, I dropped out there. Oh, um, yeah. Edit, edit this. Oh, yeah, definitely. They basically, they're, they're able to draw two cards and pick one um, after the, the raccoon cooks two of the characters in the party, which is grim, but also pretty funny. Um, and also mechanically interesting and mechanically fun. There's a move in the game that allows you to discard your character anyway, but it's usually kind of a bad idea, um, and this allows you to do that in a way that lets you cycle through characters and also get a bonus instead. So there's the, also so these moves that you've uh, that that kind of are the thesis statement for these characters. The big question I have is, do they sort of subvert the um, the core mechanics in fun ways? I say that in 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 referring to um, this this article someone wrote about playbooks for Powered by the Apocalypse and how each playbook should be kind of its own little mini-game. And with roguelites, like a roguelike Powered by the Apocalypse, that seems like fertile ground to kind of explore that, where each kind of quick and easy character sort of does something very different and changes how you're going to play the entire game a bit. Do, do you kind of explore that with that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That, that's, that's in many ways a sort of guiding principle behind what we do here. You know, like, there's... There's maybe like a dozen different sort of spellcaster classes in the deck, but they're all very, very different in how they go about it. You've, you've got a, a basic um, like ritual style caster, but um, I've been playing around with a character that does kind of a Vancian um, spellcasting system. Uh, we've got a, a trash mage that does magic based around um, summoning trash. And the way how players like tweak with that is really fun. Like the way how they mess around with what constitutes trash is really cool. And like we've got a bunch of martial characters that play very, very differently. And like I say, we've we've got a whole genre of characters that do things that literally is impossible in any of the Powered by the Apocalypse game because they directly interact with the deck on the table, mm -hmm. again in a variety of different ways. Some characters burn cards off the top of the deck to empower themselves. Some characters, you know, like I said, distribute extra cards to other people. I've, I've written a character that um, uses characters from the deck as armor. Um, things like that. Cool. Uh, so how many characters are in, uh, like, how many characters are in, like, the initial sort of deck of the game that's coming out that have been designed so far? There's, there's three answers to that. The first is that the print and play set that you can go and check out right now has something like 30 characters, I believe. Uh, we may have bumped that up since. We may not have. 
the number of designed characters wobbles somewhere between 50 and 40, depending on the day of the week, whatever we're working on. And then it, in the end, we're hoping to have 65 cards in the deck with about 60 of those being characters and five for, um, you know, setting and, and rules and that sort of thing. Cool. Uh, so what sort of genre does the game kind of cover? You, you had mentioned that it was very D&D gig economy inspired. Is that, is that purely going to be sort of fantasy, modern satire? Yeah, yeah. If you had to put like a sort of a Dewey Decimal System label on it, that, yeah, like that really would be, quick I and think, dirty. what you would do. Yeah. Um, if, I, if I have a little longer to talk about it, um, the, you've kind of got the setting of Jet Set Radio and the the roguelike mechanics and the D&D dungeon crawling all kind of meshed in a big pot um, with a bunch of playing cards thrown in for good measure. Mm-hmm. Uh, any plans to kind of swing into other genres that kind of take advantage of people constantly being broke and having to do uh, awful stuff to survive? You know, Shadowrun style or even that uh, sort of Firefly angle? Not right now. That's a it's a really cool idea. Um, we've definitely been kicking around the ideas of like what we could do for expansion decks uh, and expansion packs and playing around with like different settings and so on, like you were saying. But nothing nothing massively concrete yet. I think that the one of the fun things about the game, um, and this this works for some people, this doesn't work for others. I get it. But one of the things that I enjoy is that like the theme, the setting isn't really the theme like you sort of touched on that the game is about people who are in a shitty situation that are doing something they'd rather not be doing to survive um and that's so ubiquitous that if you would rather not play in this wacky far future fantasy mashup world you can play anywhere else mm. um obviously the, the the visual design is always going to be inspired by the jet set radio stuff but you know yeah, exactly. Um, it's versatile. Yeah, sounds like. Um, so I know there are characters in this game, as we've been talking about them quite a lot. But other that, other than that, in the deck, is there stuff like finding gear, uh, rewards, treasure, wandering monsters, that sort of thing? Does it sort of have that kind of Munchkin vibe? No, not at all. Um, like like I was saying before, like the the motives for the characters are are very different from your standard role playing game. Right. You know, the, you don't. There's no reason for them to be like trying to gain weapons to, to, to get stronger and faster and better and whatever. They're just they're trying to get paid. Um, you know, when you're working at Best Buy, you're not trying to level up your computer skills unless it's absolutely mandatory. Not with that attitude. <laughs> right. That's why I got fired. Find that battle axe in the store. <laughs> right. Um, but but right, like that sort of gameplay loop isn't present. And there were times when we talked about putting it back in, but we thought that that would really dilute the core concepts of the game. And so we kept them out. Okay, perfect. All right, so the Kickstarter itself has already begun. Uh, we're a few days into it as of this recording. So um, now, how, how much... Sorry. How much are you looking to raise for the Kickstarter just for the uh, for, to be considered a success for uh, Sandy Pug Games? If I can hit the goal, I consider that a success basically every time. Um, the goal for the Kickstarter right now is 14500 um, which is a little high, but that's because we're paying people a fair wage. That's because we're paying a couple of people 
a nice fair wage, and I think that they're doing really incredible artwork that deserves proper remuneration. Absolutely. And so, I, I'd rather set a, a a proper goal and risk not hitting it than set a low goal and have to underpay anyone. Yeah, exactly. That's something that's important that people kind of pivot towards in the hobby these days. We undersell ourselves so much. Exactly. You know, a, a lot of people. A lot of people here think that we're in the business of writing rule books. A lot of designers are, but like a lot of the games that we kick out are art books. They're like premium table, like like coffee table display pieces. I, I like yeah absolutely. the idea that you could make these on like a, like I see Kickstarter for like four thousand dollars. That's absurd. That's like I've seen I've seen coffee table books that have budgets of tens of thousands of dollars because art is expensive, rightly so. Yeah, to to get people to buy a physical book, uh, the demand for it to have like you know an A plus layout, excellent art pieces, it has to all be the same type of style, and you know it has to go on a shelf and line up and all that is is enormous. But you know the prices for it certainly don't reflect it. Yeah, a lot of people like a lot of people are pricing their stuff at like like twenty dollars for for like a couple hundred pages of incredible work and then a lot of people are demanding prices less than that yeah exactly. a lot of people are on drive through rpg like complaining that a ten dollar pdf is too expensive exactly um so and of course this kickstarter seen as it's you know the the card game deck the uh the rules and whatnot there's a lot more physical components going on with that right exactly yeah um so what is the planned release date after the kickstarter ends and presuming that it uh succeeds and hits that we goal. like to give ourselves a lot of room. We like to uh, make sure that we're not over-promising. Um, we're, we were talking about December of next year-ish. Um, you know, that that's the goal. We hope that we hit that. We think that we can get the images and everything drawn by then, and we think we can get things shipped and, and tested and everything by then. Is that completely completed, or is that, say, the, the digital portions of the game being finished and then moving on to physical production? My... Estimates say that December of next year, presuming we get funded um, this month, December of next year is when we should be able to be beginning shipping the stuff out. Okay, excellent. That sounds like a pretty good turnaround, especially for a game like this. Yeah, I mean, fingers crossed. You know, I, I don't want to. I don't want anyone quoting this to me in December of next year, shouting, "Where's my Dex deck, man?" Yeah. Um, I, I'll do my best. We haven't. Um, you know, sometimes things happen, and and I'm hoping that they won't. But when you're talking about shipping stuff across seas and everything, you know, yeah, shipping's gotten real dicey for the hobby. It's uh, it's it's fluctuating real hard. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Even the heavy hitters, like the the one, the even those people that are constantly putting books out for like companies are are suffering from that. Right, right, right. And that's that's without talking about like your normal delay stuff. I have a friend who kickstarted their game and they, you know, had all of this this extra time put in and they, they were talking to me uh like three or four months before the game was supposed to ship and they were like, Oh, you know, it's it's on the boat from China coming over now. I'm really excited. I'm gonna get everything delivered early. And then like two months pass and they like, I don't know where my games are. And they contact the company in China, and the company in China is like, oh, we don't know where the games are either. They didn't show up. And presumably, there's a shipping container somewhere in New Jersey or wherever, just full of this board game. And they had to get a second order shipped out, and it was it was a huge kerfuffle. These things happen. But, like, yeah. Oof. That's why we like to give ourselves room. 
Yeah, I know a few artists that were priced right out of the hobby because their commissions were coming out of Britain when Brexit happened, and that did not go well. Yikes, yeah. (laughs) They're just like, we're done. We're out. Yep. Uh, But yeah, shipping physical products. uh, Yeah, it's always an exciting thing to, uh, to do when you're running a game Kickstarter. I'll be straight up, this is the first time Sandy Pook Games has ever done a physical product shipping. So, like, I'm I'm still learning. Um, I'm excited for the opportunity to, to learn this stuff. It's not something I've done before. Um, yeah. Um, what kind of rewards are there? Like, what kind of backer rewards uh, are thrown up for the game right now? We are keeping things pretty simple. Uh, keeping things nice, nice and streamlined. So the, the primary reward is, of course, the deck. And then we have a signed box of the deck, which I say signed mostly. I think people are backing that because they get uh, my dog Pumba's paw print on it. Um, <laughs> which he is the Sandy Pug. Um, then we have your sort of general name a character, build a character sort of stuff in there. Yeah. I, I have done wacky tiers before, and I've had a lot of fun writing those. And sometimes they can be a lot of fun. But in the end, like especially with my first physical... Thing. I really wanted to keep things as as you know stripped down bare metal as I could because the less things that we do silly the 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 less things can go wrong. That said, Sandyput Games has a little bit of a reputation for getting up to some wacky nonsense after our Kickstarter's are wrapped, and I'm talking ARGs. I'm talking sort of like fun games that we play with our backers and. I'm not going to spoil anything because I like to keep that stuff as a surprise. But I'll just say we've got some, we've got some plans for that. Those aren't really backeteers. If you back and get a copy of the game, we'll make sure you're involved in the silliness. But is there just, like uh, a is there like a community that they, that people can join if they want to kind of take part and uh, you know get interested in the games that you make? Not yet. Um, I I have a Discord server that is dead. Um, but maybe I should set one up in the wake of this. Maybe we'll we'll have a proper Sandyput Games uh, community to, to hang out in. Nice. Um, stretch goals. What kind of stretch goals do you have lined up? I have um, what I decided to do, what we decided to do, sorry, Ren and I, we kicked around a couple of ideas, like an expansion deck uh, full of mythical creatures instead of the the animals that all the other characters are based on. But what we ended up landing on was we we know a lot of artists. One of, one of my favorite things as a creator is that I get to meet a lot of really creative, a lot of really passionate, a lot of really, really clever people who make beautiful artwork. And I really love to pair them to make cool artwork. So we gathered up a bunch of the artists that we know and a bunch of these people that we think are, are absolutely just incredible talent and we said okay every $500 that we get over our goal we will pay each of you to make one of those tags for the backs of the cards and so the the stretch goal the only really one that we have is for every 500 bucks that we get above the the line we'll add an extra five cards to the core deck and they will all be illustrated by one of five guest artists who all have very very different styles and I've told them, we've told them that that they should be drawing these in whatever style they like. And so you're going to have this call deck of about 60 cards or so drawn by the designer Ren that are, that are in this very loud, electric, Jet Set Radio inspired graffiti tag style. But we have someone who 
is a lot more uh, watercolor style based. We've got this sort of comic book style character. Um, one of the people mentioned that they might do some pixel art tags. So that's going to be really cool. I think yeah. that's going to be a lot of fun. It's excellent. So uh, we've talked about um, sort of the Kickstarter, the game itself, Sandy Plug Games. Could you tell us who's working on the game with you? Yeah, so the full team is Ren, uh, the artist and primary designer, uh, who is doing a fantastic job coming up with some really, really amazing things. There's myself. Uh, I am co-designing, and I guess you would call me the project lead. I'm doing a lot of sort of the, the, the nitty-gritty work um, and the promotion and all that stuff. That's why I'm here. The We have a layout artist uh, called Francita Soto, who is uh, excellent. Just excellent people. Um, where we also have another artist, Hector Rodriguez, who is doing guest art on the project as well. Um, they're going to be doing a handful of cards for the core deck. And then our guest artists are Andy... Dis uh, pardon me. Let me redo that one again. Our guest artists are Andy Disprito, who did the core art for Americana. And oh. if you've seen Americana, mwah, you're very excited to have them working on this game. Yeah, it's cool they came back for that. Yeah, I, I think I'll be working with Andy for as long as I can afford to pay them, which if they keep making stuff as high quality as they do, won't be for very long. So please give me money now before they become a massively, massively successful person and I can't afford <laughs> them anymore. That, that uh, happens more often than you'd think, listeners. It, I would love nothing more if, right? if, if I have if I have a if I have one one wish it would be that everyone who I work with becomes too popular for me to you get priced it. out yeah <laughs> yeah it is it's a good problem to have we've got Leah Mitchell who's also a guest artist also excellent uh, Jacob Northup also a guest artist also excellent and uh, two people whose actual real life names they haven't given me but i i've seen their work and they've worked with me under the projects uh camapon and zacio um who also guest artists also excellent stuff the only reason i was very enthusive with my prayers for andy is that we have worked one-on-one -on, -one on this americana thing for a very long time now so we're very close but um the other guest artists are just excellent just wonderful people and i'm really excited to see what they do perfect so uh, I guess at this point, what I want to ask is, uh, you know, how, from the inside perspective of starting your own sort of game uh, production group, uh, how does that look from the inside out, from starting out from being someone who enjoys games, reading them, playing them, sort of tinkering with them, to running your own, you know, multiple successful Kickstarters? Uh, what's that journey like? It's a lot of screaming. It's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of screaming. Uh, it's, I mean... I think it depends on who you are. I think it's it's one of those things that's different, you know, it, where, from wherever you're starting from and, and whatever your, your conditions are. For me, it was it was wanting... It, it began with my brother wanting to play a Storm Wizard in Dungeon World and me making a Storm Wizard character and then other people playing in that campaign wanting custom moves and custom characters and me making those... And then me thinking that some of them might be good enough to sell and putting them on drive through RPG and then promptly forgetting that, that I put them on drive through RPG and, and leaving them alone for two and a half years. So I ended up with a bunch of those publisher points you can use to promote your stuff. 
I can recommend that if anyone's got two and a half years to wait. <laughs> and then, you know, just having ideas for campaigns that didn't get run, but I thought would be fun to write up for someone else. Adventures that I ran at, at, at Gen Con and other conventions that people seem to like a lot, so I wrote them up. I didn't have any art skills, so I leaned on these Photoshop abilities that I had where I would just sort of photo manipulate free art or free photos and that sort of thing. And then having this just sort of like incrementally building on all of that up to a point where bigger projects seemed like fun to make, you know, like seemed like something that I could get my teeth into. I've been doing this for years now, for like six years total if you factor in everything, six or seven if you factor in absolutely everything. I used to I started off making board games, um, which is harder to get into people's hands. Because um, you have to get them into people's hands. Well, exactly, yeah, right. You have to produce <laughs> them in some way. Right. With, with, with role-playing games, you can give someone a PDF and they can enjoy what you've made right out the box. With, with making board games, it's like, if I send you a PDF, that's an that's a evening that you're going to spend putting together this thing. And maybe you won't put it together right. Maybe I'll have sent you bad instructions. Maybe the rules like aren't as clear as they should be. And you're having a frustrating time. If the rules are unclear in a role-playing game, you can just yell at me and I'll fix it right there and then. Exactly. So that seemed like a much easier sort of low barrier to entry thing for me to get into to sort of turn from being a consumer of this art form to being someone who creates things in it. And I, I don't know. The, the journey's been a long one. It's been an interesting one. Um, generally, I just try to have fun and experiment and play around with what is happening out there. My one big break, Orc Stabber, um, was really popular um, for me, for like someone of my sort of level at the time. And it was largely popular because I was just messing around with Kickstarter and the concept of Kickstarters and what was possible on that platform. And like we've just kind of gone from there, trying to make unique, cool things, stuff that you're not seeing anywhere else, and just seeing where that takes us. So really, a lot of it seems to come from uh, committing to sort of the process and like going back, revising, learning, kind of teaching yourself as you go. Right? There's no real, yeah, the... not 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 to downplay what you've done, but there's no real magic formula. You have to you have to go out there and put your work out there and kind of learn the ropes. That's absolutely right. There's nothing nothing downplaying about that. That's that's just what it is. That like I started I mean, also I'd be remiss for not saying that a great deal of luck is involved. A, an enormous amount of luck. I, we're getting into like what makes success at this point, but like Yeah. Tricky conversation. It's right. Every single ounce of success that I have um really boils down to a great deal of luck and fortune and people being kind enough to sort of like open a door for me or help me up. Uh, here or there, and also having a community of friends um, around me that have been very, very, very um, generous with their time and their energy and their own skills. I mean, if you're creative, you tend to have a lot of creative friends, and creative friends tend to be very kind to the creatives just because, like, we're all sort of in it together a little bit. Exactly. Community is a cornerstone of the hobby, especially if we're trying to, like, get into it as, a, as someone who produces things. That's right, and and part of why I'm really excited about Disposable Heroes is that it's an opportunity for me to finally kind of do some of that myself in a much more direct way. You know, I try to give back to the community as best I can. I, I, I offer free, I offer free Kickstarter advice for people. 
uh, marginalized folks. I, um, you know, I put a lot of money back into the community where I can. I, you know, whatever I can do for folks, I'm usually there to, to hook people up with networking and that sort of thing. But that's not quite the same as taking as taking someone's game and being like, okay, let's get this made. Let's figure out how to do this, which is what we're doing with this one. Right. Perfect. Well, um, I do have one question that's off topic before we start to wrap, wind down here. You say you make right. um, Dungeon World playbooks, right? I haven't made one in a while, but yeah, yeah, I, I used to. Did you make one for either dragons, a Krampus, or a skeleton? I made one for Dragonkin, which is close. Okay, there's a there's backstory to it. We'll talk about it after the interview, but uh, I'm sure listeners right. when they even I'm sure listeners who listen to our show will get what I'm referring to. It's it's all. I good. could make you a Krampus character sheet if you like. Oh, it's this whole thing. If Tyler's listening, he's real pissed. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we're sorry, yeah, we're sorry, Tyler, but not really. All right. Well, I'd like to thank you for coming on to the show today to talk about uh, Disposable Heroes. It sounds exciting. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how that all turns out and for talking about the process and just, you know, how people, a lot of listeners are really interested in getting into this uh, aspect of the hobby. And it seems just insurmountable when you look at it from the Wizards of the Coast or the Onyx Path or the Pezo perspective. But it, it, you can really get into there. The barrier for entry has never been lower, especially with things like Itch.io. So thank you for uh, for kind of sharing your experiences with us today. Absolutely. And if anyone out there is like struggling to figure out how to make that entrance into the, into the, the world, just reach out. Just reach out to, you know, me. Like I'm on, look me up on Sedipug Games uh, on Twitter and send me a DM. Tell me like what's on your mind, what you're trying to do. There's, you know, my inbox is full of, of, of new designers that have sent me stuff and like we've chatted and, figured out how to go forward with what they're working with. Um, it's that I, it's, this is a welcoming community as much as, it, as far as it goes. I, I and I want to make it as welcoming and accessible as possible where I can. Perfect. So, yeah. And if I don't have the answer, I probably know someone who might. Exactly. So, yeah. Uh, thank you again, Liam, for being on our show tonight. Um, I was Devin, and we have Peter here with me, though he was kind of working in the background, taking a look at the script and uh, doing highlights, so that's why he was pretty quiet today. Yep. There he is again. And uh, I think this is where we'll uh, sort of end the episode. So, um, also, Liam, this is where you just say your name after I say my name. So I go, I was Devin. I was Liam. And Peter. And this is sponsored by Nobody, signing off.